Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your fortnightly look at the world of evidence currently somewhat dominated by COVID-19. You may have noticed that Duncan Jarvis, our co-host, is not here, so apologies that you're not being greeted by his relaxing and reassuring Scottish tones. He is on holiday. But we are here. I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor at the BMJ, and with me from his lockdown COVID hut is Carl Hennigan, Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and Editor of the BMJ's EBM Journal. Hi, Carl. Hi, Helen. This week on the show... We had planned to come back to the latest on remdesivir and dexamethasone for the treatment of COVID, but that content wasn't quite ready. So in the meantime, we discuss real world evidence from around the globe on how well physical distancing measures have gone during lockdown. And this might prove useful given that the ongoing wave of COVID is still happening in the US and there are some signs of continued or new outbreaks in Europe. We return to face masks and whether there is truth in the theory that they might make us more reckless. Carl gives us an update on deaths in the home in the time of COVID. And away from COVID, we look at the Health Research Authority's new strategy on research transparency. And we hear from one of the report's orchestrators about the plans. And finally, Carl is going to tell us about some new research linked to a BMJ investigation into a system designed to generate new evidence on rare diseases which has turned into a bit of a corporate cash machine. We'll make a start with COVID. So last week we talked about how COVID was providing us with natural experiments where we can describe and compare how presentation and treatment and outcomes for various illnesses have been affected by the pandemic for good or bad. And we talked about the drop-off in presentation with acute coronary syndrome, particularly with heart attacks. This week, I've been looking at a natural experiment within COVID and spotted a research paper on interventions for controlling it. This paper examines the association between various types of physical distancing, aka lockdown, and rates of new COVID infection. It's in the BMJ and is also a linked editorial, which is quite interesting. So at the start of the pandemic, Modelling studies were really driving decisions on what distancing measures should be put in place. And we hope these measures should work. Um, And there was some variation in the types of measures different countries chose to introduce and why. We're moving on from modelling studies now into real world data. And it's interesting to see these start to emerge and consider how they might be able to shape our decision making going forwards. So in this paper, the authors have looked at 149 countries or regions And they've looked at five physical distancing measures. So closure of schools, closure of workplaces, closure of public transport, restrictions on mass gatherings and public events and restrictions on movement lockdowns. And they've looked between the 1st of January and the 30th of May 2020. The data on these policies came from the University of Oxford COVID-19 government response tracker and the outcomes that the authors were looking for were reported cases of COVID-19 from the European Centre for Disease Prevention. They used an interrupted time series analysis where each country acted as its own control, pre-intervention being the control period, and then looking forward to see what happened over time. And there were really three headline findings. One was that the distancing um, was linked to a drop-off in incidence of COVID-19 infection which I don't think is unexpected they say a 13% reduction in the incidence rate ratio 
And they found that whether you introduced four of those five measures or five of them, the results were more or less the same. Um, and particularly that public transport didn't seem to have much uh, effect or closing it didn't seem to have much effect when you had the other measures in place, which I guess is kind of obvious because if you're not travelling to school or work or uh, beyond your home, then it's going to be pretty empty. And they thought that earlier implementation of lockdown, and I haven't quite grasped exactly how they defined early, uh, was on average associated with a bigger drop in COVID incidents than later lockdown. On average, the policies were implemented around nine days after the first reported case. But there were some key countries uh, like us in the UK and the US and Canada who took uh, more like a month to, to decide to introduce it. So there were lots of criticisms of modelling studies but I don't think these real world data are without their problems. And the authors and the editorialists discuss that these measures of COVID incidents are quite problematic because we didn't test even nationally, let alone globally, for consistent reasons in a consistent way over time. Um, and some people wondered, you know, should they have used death instead? And we have similar problems with death statistics. And the linked editorialist, Thomas May, really felt that this kind of research, these kind of data are just proving quite inadequate for us to evaluate things and calls for a more coordinated global public health infrastructure to be used in pandemics. And he says that this is something that has been talked about for a long time. Um, so that's one problem. And then I think, again, this is showing this disparity that we have between the investment and time that we put into thinking about drugs interventions and the investment and time we put into thinking about other things. Um, so, Carl... Tell us your thoughts on this one. Well, I think it's interesting nowadays. When I read a paper like this and it says it's research, where do I go first? And I seem to be turning around my journey in terms of reading papers because I go straight to the limitations section and start to think through exactly what they've done and how many caveats to this. And this is a good section because they, they detail a number of the limitations and basically talk about the poor quality of the data, uh, the problems with case detection, particularly if you stop detecting cases because you switch off your testing like we did in the UK. They can't measure things like adherence to the interventions. And so the problems go on and on. And so I find what we're doing here is we're rushing in to find an answer in the midst of while we're still in the pandemic. This is an incredibly important question to answer. But what it needs is really in-depth analysis, trying to tease out 149 countries and regions and ask questions about the difference. There are so many issues that need to be accounted for. The population, the distance we live in, the urban centres, the seasonality effects, temperature, humidity, throw all that in, the testing policies, all of that together means that actually I find this incredibly difficult to infer anything. We do know that social distancing has an impact. We've seen that for years, what happens in the natural effect during summer. When we all go on holiday, schools stop, we see a reduction in acute respiratory infections. And it's really interesting. It's quite a significant difference. If you look at the data from the Royal College of GPs Surveillance Centre, about this time of year in general practice, we normally see about four to five consultations per 10,000. Come winter, 
when we call an epidemic, it goes up tenfold to about 40, 50 per 10,000. Significant difference in that variation. The key here is, can I infer anything about which interventions make a difference based on this study? And? <laughs> uh, no, I cannot. This is an imp important study, but this is done too rushed, too quick, and needs to be done more in detail. In fact, what I'd like to see is more looking at a regional level where you can start to go into detail to look at things like the number of people who are actually travelling, the number of people who are actually still going into schools. There are differences in the number of people who were in schools because some were still open with those of key workers. You get down to that individual level data, you could provide some really interesting information. So do you think this is an argument for researchers in some way or the research community to push back and just say until we've got some better ways of measuring this stuff you're just not going to get an answer so we we shouldn't be doing this research or do you think you try and provide as researchers the best evidence is would this count as being the best evidence available well is this would be a bit this is one of my problems with observational research it's lack of registration it's lack of protocols pre-specifying what it was done. This would be rather like doing a randomised controlled trial and you're about to recruit 1,000 patients and, and do in-depth baseline analysis and what you do is say, well, look, let's just report on the first 100. We're not really going to do the full job. We've got some results already. Let's get the information out there. Let's see what it does. It, whereas when it comes to clinical trials, we understand all these issues. We want the individual patient data many times to understand what's happening. Combine them into systematic reviews. So we have all that robustness in clinical trials, and then we throw it out the window when it comes to observational research. And this is why we're in a bit of a pickle. Observational research is about tenfold greater than randomised controlled trials when you go to PubMed, hundreds of thousands each year. And it's very hard to determine for anything because it keeps coming through. You can get other pieces. I've got one, if you're greater than six feet tall, if you're bald, you can keep going with the observational <laughs> uh, uh, findings that keep coming out. And you sit there and you go, and I go, it just doesn't help me understand because the decision to close schools or not is crucial here. But we really need to understand, does it actually make a difference or not? Because if it doesn't, then we can keep going in the future. I think there's, a, there's an emergence or an evolution of this research that needs to happen because there's so much data out there, big data, it's too easy to do, get the answer out. I'd like much more in-depth analysis. We know that physical distancing makes a difference. The question is, how long can you carry it on for? So, Carl, let's move on to face masks. This is another area where uh, I think you have ranted about the quality of observational research and the in the lack of good quality uh, randomised controlled trials. And we're coming at it from a slightly different angle today. Uh, I'm going to make a statement, a bold statement for me, which is that um, there is no evidence that wearing a face mask makes us reckless. Let's have a go with that, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> the dreaded so, no evidence. I know. So face masks have become rather polarised uh, in terms of discussion about them. I think we can agree on a few things that there is a lack of high quality evidence for the balance of their efficacy and safety um, amongst um 
the public in various indoor and outdoor settings. And some people are concerned about the quality of observational data that are filling that void. Guidance has been quite varied and it's changed in places and I think that's made some people feel a bit suspicious. People's values and preferences and perception about wearing uh, masks and the risks I think varies. I think there's some cultural factors here, practical issues, there are some mechanistic reasons to suggest they might be helpful or harmful and particularly there is this concern that if you wear a mask you might behave differently and you might in some way feel invincible in your mask and behave in a more reckless way um, either endangering yourself um, and perhaps others around you and it's this last point this invincibility point that was on my mind when I saw this piece by uh, Eleni Mansari and colleagues which is a debate article in the BMJ and they argue that this idea which I'm calling invincibility might be a very fascinating behavioral theory but we don't have compelling evidence that um this phenomenon kind of exists at a population level um, rather than a personal level. They don't, of course, call it invincibility. They call it risk compensation or false reassurance or risk homeostasis or moral licensing, rebound or negative spillover effect. I'm going to call it invincibility because that makes more sense to me. And I was quite convinced by their case in some ways. They, they do two searches. They look for some indirect evidence of reckless behaviour resulting um, in from different scenarios that might make you feel safe. And they say there are four interventions that are often cited here. One is that wearing a bike helmet will make you cycle in a more reckless way. The other three are all linked to the idea that you'll have more risky sex if you are circumcised, if you um, have taken pre-exposure prophylaxis to reduce the chance of you getting HIV, or if you've had the HPV vaccination. And the authors say that the most recent systematic reviews for each of these four scenarios does not provide evidence um, of risky outcomes. And they say that risky behaviour is least likely to be found in studies which we generally find to be more reliable, namely trials. And I'm not entirely sold on whether they're sort of saying there's no evidence here or whether we're saying we have good evidence that there's no increase in the risk. Then they hone down a bit more. They don't have direct evidence from COVID, but they start to look at the use of masks in other respiratory conditions. And they say in six trials of masks in respiratory infections in which hand washing was an outcome, there was, again, the phrasing, no evidence that those wearing masks were less likely to wash their hands. And in a couple of these trials, they washed their hands in a kind of better way. So as somebody that I would say I don't really belong to either face mask camp, I thought this was quite an interesting topic and concept um, and I thought you would have thoughts on it, Carl. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, this concept. So one of the issues about the masks is, comes down to is, is, is this concept of uncertainty and reducing uncertainty. And in doing that, what you're trying to do is say to people, it's very clear what the benefits are, and we can quantify them benefits, and we can quantify those harms. And the problem I have is with the quality of the evidence, and if you look at the randomised controlled trial evidence, and that's been looked at through Cochrane and updated recently, it's very clear there's a dearth of evidence, high quality evidence to answer this question. Not only that, in this current outbreak, you would have thought, well, 
we'd be answering this question. There are like nine trials that are on uh, clinicaltrials.gov looking into this issue. However, only about five of them are actually recruiting and only two of them are actually in the public, one in Denmark and one actually in Africa trying to answer this question. So we fail to want to answer the question. People are using then low quality observational evidence. And the issue here is, is in the same, when people say to me there's no evidence, I have a difficulty with that because what that's interpreted is to say there's no evidence that actually people change their behaviour in terms of the risk perception. Now, there's many more studies and examples that they could have gone to with this in many areas. Speeding, safety seatbelts, ski helmets. There's loads of really interesting areas that could have been added into this. So I'm surprised again by this quality of this paper and particularly the conclusions. What it should have said is, and I think it should have come to is, we have significant uncertainty. Therefore, when we try to put this policy in place, we, re we respect the fact that people will differ in their opinions. And, it, and this issue pervades a lot of medicine and healthcare. Our failure to reduce uncertainty means some effective interventions are not put in place and are delayed. Sometimes harmful interventions may be delayed, which is a good thing, but sometimes harmful interventions are taken up. And I think it's incredibly important that we recognise that. And I want to say... We know it for drugs, and, and do not imagine that drugs can only cause harm because advice can be lethal too. And there's a very good example in the Testing Treatments book, which globally everybody should go online, take a look at this book because it's freely available to read and download, and I recommended it to somebody earlier this week, that's why I remembered it. But the advice in there is about putting babies to sleep in their position. And this is a classic EBM one, is that, in the 1956, Dr. Spock was a leading expert and proponent of putting babies to sleep on their front. And he said there are two disadvantages to babies sleeping on their back. If, he, if they vomit, they're more likely to choke on the vomitus. And also, they tend to keep this head turned toward the same side. This may flatten the side of the head. I think it is preferable to accustom a baby to sleep on his stomach from the start. Now... There was no evidence of harm at that time in thing. But one of the issues about this study is, is that led to many babies sleeping on the front in hospitals and millions of adopting that advice. And evidence showed clearly from very high quality, good observational study, not one study, numerous studies accumulated over periods of time that that increased your risk of sudden infant death syndrome about fourfold. So we had to have campaigns then for back to back to sleep campaigns. So I think we should understand non-drug interventions require the same level of evidence as drugs. And particularly if you're going to have a policy like this, because if people keep just wanting to push uncertainty, we are not going to answer how much benefit do I derive if I wear a mask based on the current baseline of infection in the community. Now, if somebody could answer me that question, the number needed to wear to prevent <laughs> one infection, I'd be very happy to listen to it. And that's really interesting because when they looked at it in Norway, they said it's about 200,000 people, so they didn't res recommend the masks. So they'd done their homework. With the risk compensation issue, the, the thing is, sometimes they look for average effects. 
but individually it's really important. Do we change our behaviour based on the perception of our risk? Of course we do. And we do it differently depending on our age, dependent on our anxieties, what we consider. And one of the things is people do that all the time. And they've done that during this outbreak. And that's why you're seeing younger people now reacting and going, I'm going out, I'm starting to recognise my risk is lower. And older people still going, hmm, my risk is higher. Maybe I will react in a different way. So it's incredibly important we supply an evidence base so people are clear about what the benefits and the harms are. So it's also not as simple as being reckless. It's a, it's a, in part, as an individual level, a judgment about your personal level of risk. Um, whereas I guess what this, what this would seek to do would be to describe some kind of average population approach or population answer to that question. Yeah, and it's important to recognise. Remember, there are no active treatments for COVID. Dexamethasone, when we talk about it, is for people who've recovered and have viral pneumonia and the reaction and the inflammation and immune problems that go with that. Therefore, all of the measures that we want to instigate are non-drug interventions. Yet we tolerate such a poor quality evidence base, like the last one before, to inform what we should do. Yet we do all these high quality trials and, oh, oh, and surprise, surprise, we find a lot of the drugs don't work. If we flipped it, what would happen? Many of these drugs would be going into practice and we'd be like, we're not quite sure whether they work, but we probably have a very high quality understanding of what makes a difference when it comes to preventable actions that we can all take. Well, I think we should stop talking about interventions now, Carl, and talk about something else like outcomes. (laughs) And one outcome that you have talked to us a lot about on this show uh, is death. Um, And this is more uh, observational data from the Office of National Statistics in the UK that you wanted to give us a bit of an update on, um, because last week we were hearing from you that there was this concern that there was ongoing increased deaths in the home setting. We didn't really understand why that was happening, but you've got some more data now and some new thoughts. I'm a bit of a, 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 an ONS nerd right now. Every Tuesday morning about 9.30, the ONS posts up an Excel sheet, which is a wonderful piece of data that gives you incredible... So you amount. like this observational data? Yeah, yeah. I'm like a groupie for ONS. They do an amazing job. It's one of the impressive pieces of data that comes out of this uh, pandemic, but it's been going on for years. So it's one of these key bits of data that you can look at each week. It tells you how many people have died. It tells you about the setting, the age, five-year age bands, amazing piece of data. So we look at it each week. And one thing this week is continuing to look at the trend. So for the last five weeks, we've continued to see less deaths than the five-year average in all settings. However, that is not the case in the home setting. And what we've seen is about, for the last five weeks, is over 700 excess deaths on average per week, 3,799 in total reported in the home setting. Only 179 of these have mentioned COVID on the death certificate. So the vast majority are non-COVID deaths. But the number of deaths in the home setting are almost 50% higher than the total number of registered deaths with COVID in any setting over the last five weeks. It's about 3,800 versus 2,500. So if you think about that, 
There are more people dying at home in the last five weeks with non-COVID causes than COVID in any other setting. And I think this is a really important issue right now and needs to be urgently looked into. How would we do that then? Well, look, the first thing is within the death certificates, you can go and do a more in-depth analysis. You can then triangulate them with the medical records. Is this an expected death? And there may be some. Maybe some people have gone, look, we're actually more prepared now. These are expected deaths. We're going to manage them in the home setting. And we do at times admit people to hospital because we go in and go, oh, this is a disaster. This person is dying. Nothing's been prepared. It's a real problem. So maybe there's some expected death and quantifying that would be really important. Mm -hmm. But if these are unexpected deaths, which mm -hmm. will be the immediate cause on the death certificate, triangulated with the medical records, and you're talking about analysing about 4,000 cases, that's not too bad, too bad a deal to get on with. But actually, if this is immediate cause, then what we've got is a real problem with people who have avoidable, preventable deaths not seeking appropriate care and dying, not in just a few numbers, in significant large numbers in the home setting. Because the government pay quite close attention to this data in the UK. Is this kind of on their radar there? You heard anything in the rhetoric coming out suggesting that this is something that is a priority? I would say they pay attention. The word close is not, I'm not sure about that because I think there's a, a problem with COVID sort of mania at the moment where everybody's just thinking about one issue and I see that all the time. And at some point that is going to be relaxed and we're going to have to see a wider picture of what is going on. I think this is an urgent issue right now and needs to be looked in in detail because 700 deaths a week is a significant number in the home setting. And if a vast majority of them are preventable, we've got a significant problem. And you can imagine somebody with a bit of chest pain or shortness of breath thinking, I don't want to go in hospital here because actually there's still a lot of fear and panic in society. But I want to reassure that actually right now, it is safer than ever in terms of COVID because the deaths from COVID are very, very mm. low and the impact of the disease is very low as well. So talking about the wider picture, Carl, I think it's time that we talked about some non-COVID content. And let's start with research transparency. Um, Avid and long-time listeners with a very good memory might remember that I interviewed Andrew George from the Health Research Authority, the HRA, in the UK last year. They're the body that oversees the governance of clinical research involving humans in the UK. And around a year ago, they were consulting on a new strategy to improve transparency of research. Um, and when we say transparency, what we mean is registration of research, dissemination, be that public posting, um, publishing the findings, but also informing research participants of the results of uh, the, the study they were in, and also data sharing. And responsibility for these things is shared between funders, researchers, bodies like the HRA, regulators, professional organisations, publishers. So it's kind of something that I think is kind of everyone and no one's business and that always has the potential to cause uh, problems and we know that we can do better 
Um, and we talked about Andrew with that. You can go back and listen to episode seven of Talk Evidence right back at the start. Um, but this week I spoke to Andrew about the launch of their new strategy based on that consultation. So let's hear what he had to say. When we, when we talked last year, we were pulling together our strategy. We then went out for consultation. I think there's several things uh, that we found. Uh, one of the things uh, we found, which was perhaps a pleasant surprise, was that actually most researchers were really keen to make their research transparent. They were absolutely behind the agenda. They just wanted it to be something that they were told how to do it and made easy for them. I think the other thing that was a surprise, well, it wasn't a total surprise to me, but I think the, the extent of it was a surprise to me, was just how much the public wanted to know about the research they'd taken part in. Um, a lot of people came up to me during the consultation event and just said how they really wanted to be just told what had happened in the research that had happened uh, that they had been participants in. Those are really useful reflections. And so you've now gone on and finalised your strategy. Can you take us through what the the key points of it are yes of course and, and i think perhaps the, at, at, at a very high level there are three things that we really want to concentrate on the in the strategy and that is about making sure that researchers let research participants know about the findings of the study from the beginning um, also making sure that uh, we monitor uh, that the researchers are reporting their results and collecting the information about their study findings and also making information on research projects transparent and one of the ways we've done that is by talking about making research making transparency easy uh, making transparency the norm uh, and also making information public so how do you go about doing those things? How do you make, if we took make transparency easy, how do you make it easy? Well, I think one of the things that came out from our discussion with researchers and with sponsors was that actually at, so far, at, at the moment or in the past, we hadn't been particularly clear what we expected about them and what, the, what we expected of them and what they could expect of us. And so some of it actually is about simply making those expectations clear and by also giving really strong guidance and learning to help people uh, get it right. Uh, and then also, as we develop our research approval system, which is underway in the Health Research Authority at the moment, making sure we have a really good approval system that makes it easy for them uh, to do it. And doing little things like reminding uh, researchers and sponsors when reporting is due. So I think there are a lot of relatively easy things that we can do that actually will make the lives of researchers a lot easier than it is at the moment. And I think I'm very convinced that researchers are going to, if we make it easy for them, they're going to want to do it right. One of the things which interested me in how you set up the scope for this is that you didn't see this solely as being a problem about um, clinical trials, if I understood correctly, that Trials is obviously a very key part of this, um, but the other research, perhaps observational data, non, non-randomised um, studies that are going on or cross-sectional studies, there was also um, an interest in, in those rules sort of applying that similar levels of transparency. Can you say more about that? Where did that come from? Was that always there or something that emerged during the consultation? I think that well no that was something that was very much always there in the minds of the of the expert group and and of the health research authority but it came through very strongly uh, in the consultation period that uh, people didn't always understand uh, that they might be in a different type of trial they could that people 
But let me phrase it another way. People could always understand why one sort of study would be different from another sort of study. Um, and I think that there are going to be different reporting uh, requirements for different sides of study. But actually doing things like letting participants know the outcomes of the study is just polite behaviour, whatever the study is that people are taking part in. So that was Andrew George, Chair of the Expert Advisory Group for Research Transparency at the HRA. So, OK, number one is the first thing is uh, about researchers and letting people know. I just think that's a very simple principle that it's part of our job. And it's been incredibly interesting in this current outbreak, the idea that we are going to see the rise of an armchair group of EBMers. People are interested and want to know about research because the understanding healthcare it affects their life in a massive way but we have a dearth of people and it and and that's number one and i think doing it is a skill so when you want to let people know i often see people who go i've got to make my research open access and i go look they're not going to read that what you need to be doing is thinking about how you get this information to the public you're going to write a blog you're going to do a podcast what are you going to do to make it accessible that's my first point uh, the second point then is who should be policing this issue of transparency when it comes to doing more research. And I think this is a job for the Ethics Committee. The Ethics Committee, when you put a new application in, should ask you and say, oh, by the way, we've just had five pieces that you've approved. What happened to them in terms of dissemination and publishing? Are the, re- are the results on the trial register, for instance? And if they're not, you should say to them, well, come back when they are. And that's how you deal with it. So it should be an ethics responsibility, I feel. And then each institution, and this is part of the old trials mandate, should be auditable and accountable on an annual basis. And if funders find out, for instance, an institution is not publishing its research, should withhold the funding. There you go. There were a couple of other thoughts I had had, Carl, which I thought you may have interesting thoughts on. One was how easy this is to do in the context of research teams who often work quite internationally and how rules that are conceived or or, or come about in the UK, how much influence they can have both here and also abroad. Well, I think it's interesting, though. What we need to do is set the bar of quality very high. And I think we have done that with some of the clinical randomised trials we've done throughout this outbreak. And in doing that, what will happen here is When you want to understand research, whether it's trusted, you're going to go to centres and places where you say this is done in a way that actually ensures the results are published in full. I can access the protocol. I can access all of the information that matters and it gets disseminated to the public who can make a decision. In doing that, I think there's a need to develop trusted, high quality research. And hopefully what will happen is then people will start to go a bit quicker. They go, well, When research comes out of that arena, we know it's high quality and in the past we know it's published in full. If we do that, we'll lead the way in some way and then there'll have to be other countries follow. And we've talked about some of these studies on the show. We've talked about the recovery trial a bit um, in Oxford. But we've also talked with with other people doing observational research. Um, We talked with the Isaric people and also with Ben Goldacre about uh, his work using routine data. And I was interested to hear Andrew talk not only about transparency of trials in that interview, but also to talk a bit about raising the bar for observational studies, which 
while we were talking about some that were, were not pleasing you earlier yeah, in the yeah. show, Carl. But I think um, this is important because what you do is you should set out exactly what you're going to do with which outcomes. The problem is observational studies. It's too easy to do all of the things that we know in randomised trials can happen. Switch the outcomes. Change the sort of covariates slightly. Actually reduce the length of follow-up. Oh, we've got an answer now. We were going to go for six months, but let's go for three months. And so all of that fudge factor can come into play too easily. And if you said, actually, you've deviated from your protocol, then immediately you're going to go, this is not be something about causation. This is just hypothesis driving. And I think if we did that, it would be much more helpful for us to understand the implications. Well, we wish the Health Research Authority luck, I think, in implementing and taking that forwards. And I'm going to take us now from one well-intentioned scheme, perhaps to another um, that has become somewhat dominated by um, commercial interest. Carl, tell us about orphan drugs and their regulation. Well, this is really interesting. Hot off the press today is from blockbuster to niche buster, how a flawed legislation helped create a new profit model for the drug industry in the BMJ. And a new term I've heard, niche buster. So I'm going to explain that. But the first thing to say is, this is an investigation by the investigative desk, which is a new outfit, as I understand, who looked into the problems with orphan drugs. So, Often drugs are for rare conditions. In America, it's about 1 in 1,500 people have the disease. In Europe, it's classed as 1 in 2,000. That classes it as an orphan disease. And in the early 70s, nobody wanted to create drugs for any of these areas because there was just not enough people and drugs were, in them days, weren't recognised the amount of money could be made. So what happened is both uh, parts of the world, particularly the FDA, created incentives tax incentives but also an exclusivity so for once you have an orphan drug license you market that drug and supply it for 10 years with no competitors so we looked into this about five years ago and showed actually there was significant number of drugs out there their costs were significant they ranged between 700 pound a year to nearly 400,000 pound a year many of them had poor quality evidence but for many drugs, there were generics available. But the branded drugs that had an orphan disease license could be up to 82,000 times more expensive. So there's a significant issue that there's a lot of money can be made with these drugs. What these people did in the BMJ was look at this idea of niche busters. So niche busters are orphan drugs that make in excess of a billion dollars per year. And there are 20 of them on the market in the EU. And this is up from free in 2009. And what happened is one of these drugs, uh, cell gene, made by Bristol Myers Scripps, were on the verge of celebrating yet another monopoly extension. And this is the bit I didn't realise happened is, I understood you got the exclusivity for 10 years, but actually you can come back and ask for a further 10 years. Look, the thing is, this idea, I didn't realise that you could prolong the market exclusivity by coming back a time and a time and again. And this was the actual fourth time the company tried to obtain designation for one of its niche buster drugs. And what's happened here is this is starting to be recognised as a significant problem. I think there's a problem with orphan drugs. 
I recognize they need a higher price, but I think they have to have a relationship to the actual benefits they derive and a limit on their costs because they're getting out of hand. Well, I think we should leave it there, Carl, with a relatively restrained rant from you. So this week, we've updated you on the perils of observational studies looking at interventions in COVID on physical distancing and masks, and also highlighted the potentially bad news, but good observational data that uh, come out of the Office for National Statistics on death. And you've also had an update on transparency and orphan drugs. If you found this interesting and want to hear more, you can go to our new landing page on the BMJ website or subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for BMJ Talk Evidence. But for now, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.